Hello, this is Tom Williams, and you are listening to Talk Theater in Chicago's Interview Podcast. My special guest this week is one of the legends of American folk music. He is Peter Yarrow, who is one of, everybody knows them as part of Peter, Paul, and Mary, and welcome, Peter. My brother, it's a great pleasure and delight to talk to you, and uh, it is a a very, very powerful and interesting time for us to be having a moment to share because we are coming back to Ravinia, but this time without Mary, to celebrate the music that Peter Paul and Mary shared all these years. But indeed, Mary will no longer be with us because Mary passed away this year. And I know the important thing for us to recognize is that the music must continue, it does continue, and although we, uh, we mourn Mary's passing and our lives have changed dramatically, that is, uh, for Noel, Paul, Stuckey, and for me. But the, uh, the overwhelming sense that we have now, after having had this celebration of her life in, uh, in, at Riverside Church with 2,000 people, attending, and people like uh, everybody from Bill Cosby to Pete Seeger to uh, uh, Senator George McGovern and Whoopi Goldberg and um, uh, one of the members of the Freedom Singers from the Civil Rights March. We had such an incredible sense of kind of honoring and documenting the the arenas of gratitude that are so much a part of our lives that we really... Um, we have had time now to digest that, to process it, and we are going forward with uh, our our efforts to say the music will sustain and we will be there. And actually, it's a very, very interesting story as to how and why we came to that conclusion. Yeah. Well, you're coming to, to Ravinia on July 20th. Yes. Yes. And from my research... This will be the 23rd or 24th concert you've done at Ravinia through the years. Yes, it, it's, it was kind of one of our homes and a remarkable place for us to to share and perform together. And uh, characteristically, each year, the uh, depending upon the weather, sometimes we'd have, you know, uh, 15,000 people there with the shed filled up, and it was like a, uh, for many people who went onto the, uh, the lawn, it was, it was a family picnic, and it was multi-generational, and the children would come, uh, who had grown up on the music, and then the grandchildren would come, and, uh, and it, it was, it was, there was a sense of tradition, and a sense of wonderment, and, uh, no, it was it was one of our homes. There are several, Carnegie Hall being another one, of course. And that that's that's what we expect to be able to to share a sense of continuity, wow. even though Mary is not with us. You know. And let me ask you this: Have you uh, have you brought in anybody to uh, a, a female voice, or is it going to be just you and uh, and uh, Noel Paul Stuckey? Yeah, no, we are, there will never be another Mary or a Mary substitute. Okay. We, uh, we feel very strongly 
Well, I'll tell you what happened. When Mary began to be more and more fragile, we uh, had a yeah, the need to find a way to do some performances that were scheduled because the promoters pleaded with us. They said, we've got this huge audience that's coming. Please come and sing. And we didn't have Mary with us because she had to cancel. We were in, There was a period of time before she uh, passed away when we would schedule concerts and we thought that she'd be able to make it. So we went and we performed and was without Mary. And we did exactly the same concert. And it was a tribute to Mary, of course. And we acknowledged that she was uh, not well enough to come. And not, I mean, some, there were, certainly were some people that said, well, I don't want to go, you know, and because I, I'm, I'm not here to see Peter and Paul. I'm here to see Peter, Paul, and Mary, and that was understandable. Hmm. And so, so we lost the percentage of the audience, and goodness knows if I were in their shoes, I would have done the same thing, perhaps. But when we got there and we did the show, we realized how powerfully real that music was, and that Mary's presence could be remembered, but that the music itself had a life it still was valid and meaningful for us to share, even though we weren't together with her. So uh, when we come to a song, and we'll probably do that in Ravinia, like leaving on a jet plane, and we did this actually at Mary's uh, memorial celebration, we asked the audience to sing Mary's part on leaving on a jet plane on the choruses and the bridge. And, uh, you know, uh, so uh, kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. Cause I'm leaving on a jet plane. And they sang that. And we sang our part. Cause wow. I'm leaving on a jet plane. We sang our part. And they became the uh, incredible. Um, it became a way of literally remembering Mary by their taking her part. Isn't that amazing? I don't know of another group anywhere in the world where you could do that, where everyone knew the music so well. It's just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we understood. Now, when we come back there, we will do a good portion of the concert will be the Peter Paul and their repertoire because they're great songs that they need to go on and they need Oh, absolutely. To Continue from but, from your but, but, your puff the magic dragon on you know. Well, the magic dragon lives yeah. and lives well, by the way, uh, because the magic dragon is love, and the magic dragon, as long as the dragon's love, the dragon will be around. And when we're adults, the dragon becomes our ideals and our hopes. But the important thing is that we have other songs. Noel, Paul, and I are developing that we're going to be singing as well that are very much in the tradition of the songs of Peter Well, that's Paul exciting. Peter. you got some new songs. Absolutely. Wow. And there's every reason to do that. And that's what keeping the music alive means. It doesn't mean just going forward with the same old, same old. We have several songs, wonderful songs, that actually have come out of 
Kerbal Folk Festival and the Music to Life Festival of the music that where uh, songwriters compete to have their songs recognized that are uh, focused on making the world a better place. Well, that's certainly what you guys have made uh, a contribution. Cause I can't think of another group that was a greater influence on the American uh, social conscience for all these decades than, than Peter, Paul, and Mary. Well, you know, that's a great compliment, and that's really, to a large degree, what kept us together is an awareness that we were doing more than giving people pleasure and entertaining people. We were also carrying on as Seeger's Raiders, Mary used to call us Seeger's Raiders, by bringing people together in the way that folk music can. And that coming together was, it wasn't all like the Civil Rights March in 63, where we sang and Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech, but there are elements of that in every performance that continued the consciousness, and we continued to live that consciousness and advocate for and, some, and demonstrate for and provide, you know, uh, fundraising for the efforts at equity and justice and integration and commitment to a, a future in which there was a, a greater sense of fairness, a greater sense. And we, you know, we're still struggling with the civil rights realities. We still have children who are enormously um, uh, beleaguered by the legacy of inequity and inequality. We have people who are in the, and particularly young black males with the criminal justice system that are unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, profiled and uh, disproportionately uh, put into jails and kind of warehousing of the, uh, the, the, the those who have less, those who have not, and those who have uh, come through the through the legacy of 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 slavery and discrimination, and uh, there there's still remnants of it, and we still have a ways to go, and we still we we advocate. I'm now right over there in Israel and in the and the West Bank and Palestine uh, with a, um, a a an educational program that fosters the caring and the acceptance of the other. Uh, it's my. It's called the Don't Laugh at Me program. And by the way, if you're interested in downloading it or learning about it or getting it free, if you're an educator, you can also download songs for free. You go to operationrespect.org. Well, I was just going to bring that up. Uh, you're, this is a, a group about, this is a an anti-school violence program that you're well, very Yes, but, you know, if you were saying, I want to rid this family of domestic violence, you don't all of a sudden make huge penalties for for, create, uh, for committing violence. You work preventatively and create another compassionate kind of environment in which people can uh, treat each other with respect and they learn new habits of ways of being together. And that's the way we uh, we are now. We do not. Uh, See you, Peter. Yes, thank you. So, uh, 
uh, that that's, that's the point of view that we embrace. And it's a wonderful thing. And uh, we have a um, uh, we have 22,000 schools in the United States, but we're also in uh, South Africa that are doing this program. It uses music to uh, create uh, a community, and it uses uh, the curriculum devised by Educators for Social Responsibility, and they uh, it's basically uh, uh, the rudiment of nonviolent um, a conflict resolution with elements of acknowledgement of feelings, with the, the tools of early... Uh, Sharing of, um, of of the the the, the kinds of uh, creation of school environments by declaring your classroom a ridicule-free zone, by uh, acknowledging the importance of acceptance of others and the sensitivity to others' needs. It's 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 uh, and we just got the report back from Israel on four pilot schools. And then we went in there with the support of of the uh, U.S. Embassy and the Israeli Ministry of Education, Culture, and Sport. The results are sensational. We're going on for the next year. And we've just been invited to go to Ukraine with the Peace Corps volunteers who are in the schools. So that instead of just teaching, you know, the, 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 the basic academic subjects, teachers will also uh, develop the language of compassion and exchange, because bullying and teasing and ridicule are a worldwide phenomenon, and it needs to be uh, addressed, but not through punitive measures, through compassion, through caring, and through the development of, wow. uh, of the sensibility. Right. You are to be commended for that. Now, I, I've got a couple of questions I have to ask you, because a lot of people have told me when, when I mentioned I was going to interview you they said you got to ask them about how the group got started because there's from what my research was that that uh uh albert grossman put you guys together and and there's kind of a unique story about that well that's that's close to being the case it was albert's idea as my manager Mm -hmm. to make a group and then the two of us went around searching for other members to sing with me and uh, Mary, I saw her picture. I sang with uh, others before uh, we found Mary and Noel. Noel was running the uh, the entertainment at the Gaslight, which was kind of a coffee house and it, at Greenwich Village at the time. And he was mainly a comedian. There yeah, was he was a stand-up comic, right? That's right. Yeah. But he also sang and he also played guitar, and he was multi-gifted, but he was hysterically funny. There were three great comedians in the village at the time. One of them, Woody Allen, another one, Bill Cosby, and then there was Noel Paul Suki. Wow, that's great company to be in. I'm telling you. You guys all did all right. What? They all did okay. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And Mary, I saw her picture on the uh, uh, Cosby did. They all three of them did very well, thank you. And then... uh, Mary was a village fixture. She grew up in the village, and I saw her picture on the wall. She had of of the um, of the uh, what is it? It was this place where you bought records and uh, the folklore center. Izzy Young's folklore center, 
I went there and I loved uh, looking at the picture and says, Ooh, who's that, Albert? He said, Oh, that's Mary Travis. <laughs> She'd be great if we could get her to do this. Thing. I heard she was very shy at the beginning uh, in front of audiences. Uh, she was frightened. Yeah, that's what I'd heard. That she, but she, she had already been on Broadway with Mort Saul and she sung with Pete Seeger. But she wasn't shy. She was, uh, she was scared. So, stage fright. Stage fright, yeah. Isn't it amazing how many talented people have had that? Yeah. yeah. Well, everybody, most people do have their nightmares that to talk in front of or perform in front of others. So and, now this group is put together, and and uh, uh, I understand because of the voices and guitars that it became very important on how uh, you guys appeared on stage. That Mary was in the middle, and so that the sound. No, no, no. Actually, we switched positions all the time. Okay. And so it was too. In the last few years, it was too difficult for Mary, after her bone marrow transplant, okay. to move from position to position. But we would switch sometimes when we would sing songs like "Jesus Met the Woman at the Well" or uh, "The Hour That the Ship Comes In." She'd be in the wing position. And sometimes, and then Noel would be in the center position, or I'd go to the stage right position, but I was generally on stage left. So Mary was not always in the middle at all. Oh, okay. But, and, and the reason we did that was that acoustically, we needed to make a blend with certain people. What Noel, when he was singing lead, would always hear better from the center position. Okay. And, and so that's why we would do it. And then uh, I would be better singing when I sang my leads from the uh, stage left wing position. Very interesting. And a lot of people think these things just happen, but uh, they don't because you guys created such a such a great uh, uh, time. But your first well, couple of hits were like Lemon Tree, If I Had a Hammer, and then the song that you co-wrote, Puff the Magic Dragon. What a way to get started. Right. And that song I had actually written in college with a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. 1959, and uh, he had left uh, kind of a half of a, of a, uh, a poem, you know, a, a puff, and I wrote the second half and put the music to it, and now it had uh, a sad ending. That's my specialty, a sad ending. No longer, but when I was that age, certainly. But it wasn't a really sad ending, because the truth of the matter is that the boy went on to grow up, and take responsibility for uh, making the world a better place and his new uh, uh, new dragon was his hope and his dream of a better world and that's what happens to I agree when our, and when our when our when we grow up our our fantasies continue but not in that fashion and then you guys started uh, doing Bob Dylan songs and and uh, it, it's I think you guys made, didn't you guys make Dylan's songs more famous than he did? Oh, absolutely. In the yeah. beginning, that's what broke him out. It was that we kind of uh, made the public aware of his songs, Blowing in the Wind, and Don't Think Twice, and Times They Were Changing, and The Hour That the Ship Comes In. Those were the public's introduction, and then... Many people who, in the beginning, said, "Well, he can't sing or whatever." They, they, they got beyond that kind of perception that you had to sing in a pretty way 
to really enjoy the music, and that was a lot of the transition. I think in, before Bob Dylan, uh, except for blues singers, you had to sing in a very pretty fashion, and then once people loved his songs, they began to appreciate the fact that his way of delivery of them was actually fundamental and incredible and wonderful. And yeah, and, and I could lo- I love both of the versions, and and most people of my I'm of pretty much of your generation, uh, and we could listen to Dylan, but when we really want to hear it, we listen to you guys because it the harmonies you guys made it just made it just added a depth to the songs. Well, it it does, and the other thing it does add that kind of musical depth. But the rawness of it, if you like that point of view, mm-hmm. comes from Bobby Dylan's point of view. Yeah, so we would and, listen to both, and and I, I'm sure that happened, right? But you guys kind of put him on the map. Well, in a sense, we did, no question. Yeah. And and I'm very proud of that. And uh, we did the same with uh, Gordon Lightfoot. He acknowledges that. Mm-hmm. And Bob and Bob and uh, and uh, John Denver. And uh, we were the first to record Laura Nero's uh, song, And When I Die. And we, because we weren't looking for hit songwriters. We just looked for songs that moved us, and it didn't matter if the writer was unknown or anything. You know, we, we were de- dedicated to something that we trusted in ourselves, which was uh, something that really uh, was a gift to us because of the the skill, the sensitivity, the songcraft, and the heart of the songwriter. Who did the arrangements for you guys? We did our own You did your own, okay. But we had a music director, because none of us were uh, musically literate enough. I played the violin. I was the most musically literate of the three of us. But I And I, in fact, wrote the first arrangement of the song that we did. This train was my arrangement. But I wasn't capable of notating what we did. And also, we found that we had uh, different points of view and we had to try different things out. So, Milt Oaken became that kind of fourth member in the sense that I think George Martin was a fourth uh, or a fifth uh, kind of in the creation of the Beatles music. And then, after the first decade, when we got back together, again, after a seven-year hiatus, that person became Bob de Cormier. And Bob de Cormier uh, was the one who did all the arrangements because he was a brilliant writer and orchestrator uh, for the New York Choral Society and a and, uh, writer of choral and orchestral music. He also was a folk singer. So when he wrote the arrangements, those are the arrangements that we sang with full orchestra, and that is the new album that was just released, which wow. is Peter, Paul, and Mary with Symphony Orchestra. And we took the uh, the performances that we had done in the 1980s when he wrote those arrangements, and we uh, married them to the orchestration, and that was done in Prague. So this album is called The Prague Sessions, and musically it's the richest uh, album we've ever done. Well, that's a, I, I, I can't wait to get a hold of that. What well, what were some of your early influences? Uh, was it like people like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, or or? Well, Pete was my real, uh, my main influence, and 
certainly for Mary. Yeah. Uh, Noel was influenced more by jazz and uh, pop and early gospel or uh, rhythm and blues. But um, my influences were Burlive, Josh White, and Pete Seeger. Unquestionably, the three most important influences in my life. Mary was perhaps more influenced by Pete and Woody, but uh, we had pretty much the same background. And these people gave us the gift of the folk music that became uh, really um, a legacy, not just of uh, musical performance, but of dedication to what the songs were saying. Yes. So many groups, uh, you know, uh, uh, play homage, but, you know, uh, reality, they live the good life. And But you guys you guys walked the walk and, and, and were a, very much a part of what you believed in, and, and we respect that so much. Well, it was our privilege, and it was our joy. It uh, may be respectable and or worthy of respect from others, but more, more to the point for us personally, it was our constant sense of the fact that we were needed and we could do something in where other people didn't have the platform to do that, that uh, was the great privilege of our Yeah, but a lot of them do and they don't utilize it. That's why we respect you guys so much. Well, they, they've missed the boat then because that's the great privilege in life. When you're in a hospice, you, who do you want to see? You want to see the people you love and that you care about and it's all about caring about each other and serving each other. And that's what life is about. And if they miss that, you know, that, that, that's why the United States and the world is on such a terrible track of thinking that what you pursue in life is, uh, uh, you know, power, money, and fame. You know, that's all nonsense, what you pursue in life. And you know that when the years pass and you look at it, you say, What's important is the people that love me and I love. And my feeling, people get old because they don't feel useful. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and you guys are also such a great example of friend, what the power of friendship and loyalty, staying together all these years. Well, yes, because the, the, the kinds of things that break groups up, they occurred, but there was something far more powerful holding us together. And that, power, that was a sense of purpose, and a sense of joy. Can you imagine getting on a stage night after night and people greeting you and saying, you know, in the early years, this has given me a whole new perspective, you know, on my life. And then years later, you're singing to different people and they say, oh my goodness, you had such an effect on my life. You were there. Your music was helpful in difficult times. I mean, you know, what... An incredibly powerful and wonderful, wonderful gift. It's got to really make you feel great, doesn't it? Unbelievably so. Unbelievably great. And, you know, I feel the same way, and everybody I talk to feels the same way. And, uh, uh, I, like, I always get just so powerful on two of the songs, and, and I love all your songs, but there's two songs that, that struck me. One was the, the song you did from um, uh, Yeoman of the Guard, the I Have a Song oh, to Sing. I have a song to sing. Oh, Isn't that one of the... What is your song? Oh, it's a song of a very man, mostly, mostly. I love that song. Yeah, yeah. It, 
that. And the other one is, is at the end, the day is done. Oh, I, I thank you. You know, I wrote that song. You wrote Day is Done? Okay, I didn't want to wear that. I did. And, I, and it was turned into a, a, a book following the Puff the Magic Dragon, children's illustrated book. That, and that also hit number one uh, about this time last year. So I'm the luckiest guy because now a lot of my work is devoted to children and education and bringing uh, this kind of music to, to bear uh, for them through these uh, songbooks. All right, let me ask you, because we have about one last question, because we're, we're nearing the end of this, this interview. Is uh, I always ask this to everybody. What are your plans for the future? Is there well, any things you still want to do that you haven't done? Oh, yeah. My whole life now is dedicated, really, primarily to bringing music into the public arena so that uh, for children, so that they grow up with this kind of sharing humanizes the world and makes us all far more caring and far more uh, loving towards one another. And uh, if by the time I pass away, this music has become resurrected in the lives of children, to my belief in the power of that, to uh, to reframe life for kids um, and give them the tools of compassionate uh, exchange and empathy. Because of that, my strong feeling is that uh, I will have been helpful to resurrect something that has a huge, huge effect on society. I think music, having been eclipsed to a large degree for children, uh, and, you know, in, in schools now is 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 really uh, creates a great dilemma and yeah. it's a very very sad reality. Yeah, they, so, you can't cut the arts, you know, no. and they do the the effect is just so positive. Well, what a great goal, uh, Peter! Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Uh, we will see you at Ravinia on uh, July twentieth, and I just can't wait. And we got to get a hold of your new album. Well, I thank you, my brother, and I look forward to it. Remember, if you're interested in the educational program, it's free, and uh, it's, it's effective, and it's a tool. It's not a, a panacea. It's not uh, a silver bullet. But go to operationrespect.org, and you can participate in what is a terrific, terrific advance forward Great. to make sure our kids live with loving, compassionate exchange. Well, I'm sure a lot of people will go there. And, uh, folks, uh, thanks for listening, and go see a play this week.